Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I'm an editor here at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as usual, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. Since you've abandoned me, my whole life has crashed. Won't you pick the pieces up? Because it feels just like I'm walking on broken glass. <laughs> One of the best music videos ever. <laughs> Hugh Laurie is in that music video. Really? And John Malkovich is in that music video. I didn't realize. Oh my gosh, it's fun. Okay, Hugh Laurie. This was Hugh Laurie pre-house. So back when Hugh Laurie was still known as the British comedian, not the American dramatic actor. All He's right still then. British, actually. British dramatic actor playing an American character. So anyway, yes, we were going to talk about a glass-related topic today. Uh-oh, I studied analytics. Oh, no. <laughs> yes, no, we're going to talk about Gorilla Glass. That is that is correct. And uh, Gorilla Glass, for those of you who are a fan of all kinds of little electronic things, uh, has become very popular um, and and some weird way, a matter of some speculation in the electronics industry because yes. a lot of people want uh, their uh, smartphones and tablets and whatever else that they have that uses glass and beeps um, to have this glass. Yeah, it's this damage-resistant glass. It is scratch-resistant. It is impact-resistant. Uh, it's it's very thin. It's lightweight. So it's it's this glass that provides a lot of protection but does not add... Uh, uh, an appreciable amount to a device's weight or thickness. So any any manufacturer that's looking to make really thin, sexy, sleek gadgets, this is the sort of stuff they look at in order so that you know they don't sacrifice uh, uh, ruggedness just to get something sleek and, and sexy. Because if you get a really neat gadget that has, let's say, a touchscreen display. And you, uh, after like using it for maybe a month, you start seeing little scratches or nicks in it. That might cheese you off a little bit. Cause <laughs> these things don't tend to be very cheap, right? That is correct. So you want to have something that's resistant to damage so that, you know, you're not, you're, you don't feel like it's falling apart a month after you bought it. I hate it when that happens. And Gorilla Glass is kind of a solution to that. Now, Gorilla Glass is a proprietary term. It is owned by it's trademarked by uh, Corning, and uh, it's a uh, it's it's an interesting development. In fact, it's it's so odd because you don't normally hear about components of gadgets becoming famous on their own unless it's like a microprocessor, right? Yeah, I, I mean, you think about the uh, the guts of of things. We, we talked about um, you know things like the Wii remote, yeah, and all the parts in it are off the shelf pieces, but. I can't really actually name any of the accelerometers or, you know, the other stuff that's exactly. inside. I mean, I know they're in there, but I don't know what, who makes each chip and what it is. And yeah. I'm sure there are some people that can. It's not like, well, yeah, especially the people <laughs> who make them or are obsessed with it. But let's say that, you know, you're picking out a smartphone. You don't necessarily know or care who made the microphone in that smartphone. Yeah, you might right? say, I, I have, uh, my, my phone has a one gigahertz processor in it. Really? Who made it? Yeah, you might you might, you might even know. know that. 
So microprocessors, you might know, and Gorilla Glass has started to become that. And it's kind of interesting that Gorilla Glass could become like a rock star in the uh, in the gadget world. But at the same time, it is really impressive stuff. I've actually seen some uh, demonstrations of this glass in person, and I got to talk to some of the people who make it. And it's pretty neat. I mean, you would see a demonstration where they would take uh, a regular glass – and uh, it was like a little sheet of glass, as if you would, you know, about the size that you would see on, say, a smartphone. All right? Okay. And they would have a little dot on the glass that would show you where to concentrate. It was like the center of the of the glass. It would be wrapped up in, in uh, plastic that's resistant to damage. And they would give people a little metal uh, um, pointer, essentially. That's sort of like rounded at the end. And the idea sort is – Sort of like a stylus? Kind of like a stylus. For a uh, – for a – uh, PDA. Yeah, similar to a stylus, except like even more rounded than that. And the purpose for it is to apply pressure to that piece of glass to see how much pressure it takes to break the piece of glass. And over and over and over again, I saw people step up and they come up to the first piece that's the untreated glass and, you know, just without very much pressure at all, it shatters. All right, the second piece of glass was treated glass and they would press against that and they had to put a little more effort into it, but eventually it would have some cracks or it would even, you know, shatter. And then they come up to the Gorilla Glass, and over and over, I saw people putting their entire weight behind this thing. Like, pr- they're concentrating their weight on this tiny little point, right? The the surface area is very small, so the pressure is intense. And yet the Gorilla Glass was standing up to that punishment. And they showed other elements as well, like a ball drop test where they would uh, drop a weight onto the Gorilla Glass and show that it could withstand impacts. And they would do scratch tests as well where they would take, say, keys – and scratch it against the glass and regular glass, you know, you would see these marks. And on Gorilla Glass, it was really resisting it. So we wanted to talk a little bit about the company of Corning, and then we're going to talk about exactly, well, not exactly because a lot of this information is proprietary, but generally how they go about creating glass that can withstand this sort of damage. Well, Corning is a company known for its innovation, um, and it is certainly not a, a new player in the, the world of glass. Now, mm-hmm. Corning is... Uh, you know, we've, we've done the history of some companies on here. We probably wouldn't do the history of Corning, but, uh, the Corning website actually goes into quite some detail. There's a, uh, a really cool timeline. And we, you look at the stuff that's happened in the company's past. I'll, I'll just touch on a few of these that I thought were relevant. Uh, I mean, they were, they were starting in 1879. And this is, this will give you an idea of, of why the company might be interested in, in innovation and creating new products. Um, Corning was one of the companies asked to come up with uh, bulbs for uh, Edison's light bulb in 1879. And by 1908, apparently, was about half of the company's business was making the, the bulbs for, for light bulbs. Um, and, you know, this is really when, in the early part of the 20th century, the company really got interested in, in coming up with new kinds of products. The railroad industry asked uh, Corning to come up with glass that would resist they, they could use for railroad lights because mm-hmm. the railroad industry was was of such critical importance at that point in the in the United States history mm-hmm. um, they needed lights that would resist breaking um, and you know due to temperature because they sure. were deployed in all parts of the the uh, the country and all over the world really I guess and, and uh, the lights needed to be you know, intense so that engineers could, conductors could see the lights. So that meant uh-huh. that with a really intense light, you get a lot of heat. So the glass had to be resistant to heat just because of that. That, that's true. That's true. And, uh, also the vibration of trains. Sure. Um, and, uh, also jackalopes. <laughs> um, 
1913, one of the uh, uh, researchers at Corning, Jesse Littleton, um, asked his wife to uh, his who was named Bessie, Jesse and Bessie. Um, he gave her a piece of glass to make a cake on. <laughs> um, and the the glass held up mm-hmm. to the heat of the oven, making a cake on it. And two years later, they released Pyrex, ah. uh, the, the glass that you see in. I, I have a uh, Pyrex mis- mixing dish at home. I've got uh, several used Pyrex to, products at home. Yep, used them in, in uh, class and school for. Uh, they're they're known for their lab products. I didn't realize that uh, Pyrex was actually a brand name owned by Corning. Um, in the 1920s, uh, Corning was working on cathode ray tubes for experimental TVs, and in, by, by 1948, they were making regular CRTs. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, J. Franklin Hyde came up with silicones, which are sort of a cross between glass and plastic. Again, mm-hmm. this is kind of uh, this is kind of related, and they were they actually ended up uh, using related. Research on things like spacecraft windows and telescope mirrors and optical fiber. That's wicked cool. Um, S. Donald Stuckey came up with an idea um, for uh, f- working on a project in 1952 with photosensitive glass when the oven overheated. But the glass came out and it was milky white. And you may have some of this in your house. If you have Corningware, mm. this is where this came from. He was trying a, an experiment experiment with photosensitive glass and it turned he he realized that it wouldn't break when you dropped it and just on a personal note boy howdy it will hurt if you drop it on your foot <sighs> but it is extremely resilient i have my mom's old corningware that i i got as hand-me-down stuff and it it's <laughs> it's held up very well mm. um and then in 1964 i mean there's there's many more but there's one i really wanted to talk about because it really has a lot to do with the manufacturing of gorilla glass uh, Stuart Doherty and Clint Shea came up with the fusion overflow process. Mm. Um, and this is uh, a situation where molten glass overflows uh, the the um, reservoir that it's in. Yeah. And it pours down both sides of a tapered trough. So yes. if you think of it sort of like a, a, a teardrop where it's wide at the top and narrower at the bottom, the glass is flowing down both sides um, and it rejoins and fuses underneath. And they could. Uh, this helped Corning develop liquid crystal glass substrates, and is sort of related to gorilla the manufacturing glass. process. Yeah, we'll get into that in a minute. Um, just a couple other things. Optical fiber was a Corning invention in 1970 by doctors Robert Maurer, uh, Donald Keck, and Peter Schultz. These guys are incredibly smart. Yeah. Well, they they made it in the National Inventors Hall of Fame and also got the National Medal of Technology. Um, catalytic converters in cars. Wow. That, that, uh, honeycomb stuff. Yep. Is apparently glass. Huh. I didn't realize that. Or, or in, at least in some cases. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, uh, in 2010, uh, you talked about stem cell research. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a, Corning developed a kind of glass called Synthamax. Actually, I think it's, it's not really glass glass. It's, it's a synthetic and animal free surface because apparently stem cells require animal, they, they, to grow animal uh, stem cells, you have to have animal tissue. Mm-hmm. And Synthamax uh, basically takes that out of the equation. You can grow stem cells on Synthamax, thereby preventing you from having to, uh, to, to use harvest animal tissue. animal tissue. So that uh, you know that's that's pretty neat stuff. That's, and, and that's that's like science fiction stuff, is what that is. It, it kind of is, but you know, just uh, obviously, you've heard you've probably heard of a lot of these things, things like Corningware and Pyrex. Um, I didn't realize that they had such a, uh, a hand in optical fiber, which is something we've done a podcast on, mm-hmm. but um, not really surprising given the history of the company. But Gorilla Glass 
does use some of this technology because uh, we were talking about the fusion over overflow process. And I guess it's we should really talk about how we make Gorilla Glass or how they make Gorilla Glass. I yeah. say. So we haven't been making a lot of it here. No, no. It turns out that we don't have the robotic arms necessary for this. Um, part well, first of all, let's to to kind of take a step back. We'll talk about how you make glass in general. Uh, because they're, glass is a naturally occurring substance, right? Yeah, this isn't uh, something chemically made and and you know that is designed by people. This is something that you could find in nature. In nature, yeah. Anything where you know lava flows, you can find uh, uh, glass. Uh, places where the lightning, where the lightning, where light, not the lightning, where lightning has struck the ground, you can sometimes find glass because. Uh, it's essentially it's sand that's been uh, exposed to intense heat, and it melts, and then when it cools, it's it's glass. And you know that sounds simple, but really that's what you start off with. And um, that's the basic, the most basic form of glass. Right. So now commercial glass is, of course, a little more complicated. We don't just dump a bunch of sand in and melt it down, and then you get glass. It's uh, it tends to come from a you have three main sources where so you've got the sand which is a uh, silicon di- dioxide that's the uh, the uh, chemical makeup of sand okay um and then you've got uh, uh that that's the type that um that corning uses the other two types are uh limestone or sodium carbonate but corning uses the the silicon dioxide and uh what they do is they combine the silicon dioxide with other chemicals before they melt it down and uh the once they've added those extra chemicals in and we don't know what all those chemicals are because this is part of the proprietary approach corning takes i mean clearly they can't reveal everything because then they would lose their their advantage in the market right correct so this is this is secret stuff but the secret stuff once they melt it all down uh the resulting glass is called aluminosilicate and so that essentially what that means is that the glass contains aluminum, silicon, and oxygen. And uh, there is one other thing that's in this glass, oh. sodium ions. Sodium ions. Now, an ion, in case you forgot, because we've talked about it before, but an ion is an atom that has either gained or lost an electron and thus has a net charge. Atoms normally do not, in, in their normally in their natural state, do not have a charge because the number of electrons, which have a negative charge, is the same as the number of protons, which have a positive charge, and the two cancel each other out. I thought I, I thought atoms didn't carry a charge because they they're so small they don't have wallets, right? So they had to pay cash. That's also a problem. Also, the jokes are a problem. They use PayPal, actually. So anyway, the, uh, the so an ion, of course, is like we said, it's one that has either too few or too many electrons uh, compared to the natural state of the element. So it has either a positive or a negative charge. Now, granted, if it has more electrons than normal, it has a negative charge. If it has fewer electrons than normal, it has a positive charge. So these sodium ions are part of the the structure of this glass. Now, you can kind of think of this glass. Uh, once it's melted, uh, and it is melted down into this V-shaped trough that Chris was talking about, and actually, they fill up the trough, and then it starts to overflow the sides, and they use robot arms. Robotic arms will pick up the edges of this very, very thin material and pull them up to form sheets of glass. Right. So this is a little different from the earlier process, because from what I understand, that that other process actually want you actually wanted the glass to flow down the v yeah. and 
basically form two la- a, a multi-layer piece of glass. But yeah. in Gorilla Glass, you don't want that to happen. Is well, that correct? It, well, I think I think what happens is that's the f- initial part of the process. Again, this is proprietary stuff, so we don't know all the details. They, oh, okay. they, they obfuscate some of this. But that you have the, the, the glass meeting in the middle and fusing. But okay, it, so but it does then fuse. You just keep imagining that that trough fills and fills and fills until it reaches the top, and then it starts to overflow. And as it goes down the edge, these robotic arms catch the glass, the film of glass that's coming off the edge, and lift it up, and then you cut it into sheets. Ah, okay. So you've got these sheets of glass, and the glass has uh, the aluminum, it has the silicon and oxygen in it, and the sodium ions. Now, think of the glass as kind of like, you know, we're talking about the, this sort of structure of uh, of these elements. Think of it like a net, all right? Okay, I got so that. So the aluminum, the silicon, and the oxygen are forming the rope that you would have in a net. So you've got this rope net. Now, in the holes of that net are these sodium ions, all right? And that, that gives the, the net a little stiffness, all right? It, it's a little, it's a little, uh, it's not as flexible as it would be without the, the sodium. Then you say, well, how do we make this stronger? Well, what they do is they dip these sheets into a molten salt bath. And what they're using is potassium. And the potassium ions, uh, so you've got potassium ions in this salt bath. The potassium ions actually replace the sodium ions. Now, I want all of you to take out your uh, periodic table of elements. So everyone get out your periodic table. We'll wait. All right. So if you're looking at your periodic table and you try and find sodium on there, I'll, I'll give you a hint. It's on the left side. Uh, you look in that first column. You see that sodium is there, and it's directly above potassium. So here's the way the elemental uh, table is arranged. Chris has his out. I've got mine out already here. Um, but it's arranged so that the the it, when you look at a vertical stack of elements, those elements share similar properties. It, it, this isn't just arranged by weight or willy-nilly. The uh, the vertical stacks symbolize elements that share very similar uh, features. Chris is trying to distract me with animation now with his iPad. Stop it. <laughs> anyway, uh, so you've got sodium directly above potassium. That means that sodium and potassium share a lot of the same qualities. But sodium is lighter than potassium. Potassium's a larger element, so it's got larger atoms. That make, that's important because what happens is when the potassium replaces the sodium in this salt bath, the, the potassium atoms are actually larger and they make that, you know, they take up more space in those holes in the net. It actually makes the material stiffer and more uh, resistant to damage. Um, and that's, it's pretty interesting stuff. And the reason why this works is because the energy you need to break a molecular bond or a, an ionic bond in this case, uh, the energy you need to break an ionic bond varies depending upon the size of the atom. You need more energy to break the ionic bond for potassium than you do for sodium. So if you heat up that bath at just the right temperature and you dip a, 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 a material like this glass that has sodium ions in it, that heat's going to be strong enough to break that ionic bond and the sodium ions will will part from the structure. Uh, now, you have to make sure that the heat is not too high, because if it's too high, one of two things could happen. You would prevent the potassium ions from bonding because the energy would be too great for them to form an ionic bond, or you would actually reach the melting point of the glass itself, and the glass would melt into the bath, and you wouldn't have anything to 
to show for it. That, that seems like it would be counterproductive, yes. Right. So you have to find just the right temperature. And, uh, and that's kind of what Corning has done. They've, they've, uh, arranged it so I think it's around, oh, 400 degrees Celsius, which is about 752 degrees Fahrenheit for this salt bath. More or less. It's, it's, it's toasty. So, uh, or molten, as we often say. <laughs> so the, you, the, you've got the sodium ions, they go away. The potassium ions take their place. This makes the entire structure much more uh, uh, stiff and resistant to damage. You then withdraw the the glass very carefully from the molten bath, and you let it dry and cool. And um, and then you've got this compressed material, it's, and it's compressed because those potassium ions are larger than the sodium ions. Um, and, and just in case you're curious, sodium and potassium both belong to a group of elements called active metals. And active metals are are materials that react very strongly with <clears throat> with other substances. So that's that's the secret, right? That's exactly the well, again, not exactly, but that's the general process that Corning uses in order to chemically strengthen glass. And there are other there are other processes out there that are similar, but uh, like when I was talking about the demonstration where you had the the regular glass, the treated glass, and the gorilla glass. The treated glass is glass that's been has gone through at least a similar process, but doesn't have all the little elements that uh, that Corning uses to guarantee a very strong compressed material. Yeah, I think a lot of us who who own portable electronics that have a glass front on it um, probably at least at one point said, you know, to ourselves. Man, glass, that's, that's gonna be difficult. And then you start looking at things like, um, uh, you know, now, now that we have the two-sided phones. Yeah. You know, we have glass on more than one side of the device and you're starting to go, you know, this is great, but I drop my phone a lot. Yeah. Or, you know, how am I gonna, how am I gonna prevent this thing from... Or I might put it in my pocket where my keys are. Yeah, and I have done that. I've, well, I've done that and, and had, uh, my phone get scratched up on the non-glass surfaces. And yeah. you think glass, well, it's doomed, man. Um, why don't they just use plastic? Well, of course, glass is going to make the display uh, so much more vivid. Yeah, um, it's a it's a better material to use. Uh, so it's it's really impressive that uh, there is a material that that works so well for that. Of course, uh, you know other manufacturers have their own, as you pointed out, other um, proprietary methods for using glass. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is not something that you go buy yourself. And add to you. Know, you can't go get a piece of Gorilla Glass from Corning and say, "Well, you know, I, I like the the glass on my, you know, on my smartphone pretty well, but I'm pretty sure I can pry this out and, and put a piece of Gorilla Glass." And you can't, you can't just go and do that. Yeah, it's Maybe, not like uh, not like a screen protector that you would go and buy no. at a at a, either a, a store or a third party vendor. I mean, you it's it's one of those things. The gorilla Glass is something that's sold directly to manufacturers, not to consumers. So, so who buys it then? Who uh, who is using this? Big companies. So Sony is one of them. Ah, uh, yes. And uh, they they use Gorilla Glass on their Bravia line of television sets. You might say, well, gosh, why would you need this on a TV set? Well, like, you know, you can carry your fifty-two inch TV. Th- set I can there. give you I can give you a few different reasons. Oh. All right, one if you okay. have, if you got kids. For one yeah. thing, for one thing, here here's here's the downside to our uh, our our gadget revolution. Is that we're training ourselves that the way you interact with screens is that you touch them. That's true. You don't. You, you, you get know. The point. Yeah. I mean, there are kids who I, I've heard stories from parents. This is all anecdotal, I know, but I've heard stories from parents who say their kids 
become used to manipulating things like the iPad. And they get used to swiping their hands. And then they come up to a television. They want to change the channel. And they put their hand against the TV and start moving their hand around, thinking, well, this is how it works on the iPad, so it should work here. And it don't. Because that's not the way. You know, the rest of us have been trained that we use the remote control to do that. We don't get up and change the channel. That's what we had to do in the 70s. And we do not want to return to those dark days. But, of course, you know, the children find out that they can't go up and and you know manipulate the the TV with yeah, their hands yeah they are ignorant of the dark days of the 70s where you had to get up and turn a switch <laughs> or that dwelling. you had to wear bell bottoms or or these polyester suits and listen to the bee gees they don't yeah, i'm getting off on your 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 topic yes right. and then of course they they find out like Dora the explorer friend swiper the fox might find out that you can't swipe and then they go oh man that's a bummer. I have no idea what you're talking about, by the way. Yeah, that that's a, a quote. It's because they, I don't, they I don't tell have, him no swiping. I don't have a kid, so I don't know what Dora uh, the Explorer is. Never mind. Anyway, but yes, I no, I can I could say this actually from someone who has young children. You know, I've watched them go up and pound on the TV and you know, with a with a CRT Yeah, you're like you that have glass, a thick that, that glass, glass is, is so much thick. Is much thicker than it is with flat panel TV. Yes. So then something like the Bravia line where it's a flat panel. Super display. sleek, sexy display. Yeah. Yes, and very thin. So that's here. That's one. Here's two. Okay. All right. A lot of these televisions, uh, people mount them to walls. Well, if for some reason the mounting goes wrong, then there may be a uh, an accident, and you want that glass to be strong because one, you want to preserve the integrity of whatever the device is, mm-hmm. and two, you don't want shattered glass to go everywhere. Right. Yeah, that feel shattered like, glass tends to be a bad thing in most households. Feel, it feels like you're walking on broken glass. It does feel like you're walking on broken glass because you broken would grass. be. <laughs> All right. Anyway, uh, so that's the second one. Here's the third case, and this is one that it's it's already proven because we've seen it happen. You're playing the Wii. You have not put that hand strap around your wrist, and then you swing your sword because Link needs to destroy that next monster. And it flies out of your hand and into the screen. And because we will get complaints if we don't mention this, you could also do that with the the wand from the Sony Move, or yeah. you know whatever prop you're using with your. Or let's say Kinect. you're let's say you're standing too close to the Connect and you're playing the boxing game, <laughs> which would, I don't recommend Ooh. doing that. Yeah, that but you could use bad. props with the Connect. Yes, so that's you, true. You, you could, could also, also use yeah. You could potentially use a prop with the Connect, and then the same thing could happen. Yeah. In other words, we're swinging a lot of stuff at our televisions these days. And as a result, uh, there's the, the chance. Uh, Possibility. And there's the chance that you could accidentally lose your grip and fling something at the TV. And so the Gorilla Glass is a good way to prevent that from ruining the television and your day. Um, but there are other products that also other companies that use Gorilla Glass. Uh, Samsung has used it for the Galaxy Tab and Dell used it for the Dell Streak. And there are lots of other ones, but uh, the thing is that a lot of the, these these agreements between companies are not public knowledge. And so uh, Gorilla Corning cannot reveal all of its clients because, you know, they have agreements that are secret. Right. Non-di- so, non-disclosure agreements. Exactly. There are NDAs there. So, we, you know, we honestly do not know which gadgets have Gorilla Glass and which ones don't. There are ways to find out, but we technically do not want to do that because we like our gadgets and don't want to try and see if we can ruin them. So, um, yeah, the, the, those would be the, the customers. It would be the big corporations, not Joe down the street who wants to put a new 
uh, a new sheet of glass on his uh, smartphone. Um, and I'm sure we're going to see Gorilla Glass used in a lot more uh, applications. We'll probably see other competitors try to develop pr- uh, similar products that have a, a, you know comparable strength to Gorilla Glass. And Corning isn't going to rest on its laurels. It's not like it's not like that company's going to say, "Oh, we found it. Let's we're done." I mean, the history of the company shows they're all about innovation. Yeah, yeah. And and for something like glass, you might you know it it isn't as sexy as some of the other or well you might not necessarily find it as sexy as some of the other uh, different kinds of innovation we've mentioned on this show before. Yeah. But uh, obviously, it plays an important part in the things that we use every day. So yeah, and it's impressive. Uh, here's just a little piece of trivia that I think is kind of cool. Okay. That, that doesn't deal directly with Gorilla Glass, but more with the whole ion exchange process. Mm-hmm. This is something – it sounds like it's pretty new. Like this is this is something that maybe dates back to the 60s, you know, like the, that's when we first started figuring out how to do this ion exchange thing. But the truth is it dates way back earlier than that because stained glass uses a similar process in which you add certain metals to a glass mixture in order to create the various colors. And it's um, – it's this these metal oxides that you add to molten glass that give stained glass you know those vibrant like cobalt blue it's cobalt that's what you're adding to the glass mixture in order to do it and it's using the same sort of process of an ion exchange in really really hot molten glass so um so yeah this this whole process that that Corning's using is something that dates back centuries they've just refined it to an exact science and that's really, really good for those of us who like our gadgets unscratched. Yes, I am one of those people. I do not like scratching my gadgets. <laughs> not unless they're itchy. All right. So on that note, let's wrap this up, folks. If you want to suggest a topic to us or you have any comments about Gorilla Glass or or maybe there's something related to it that you would like to hear more about, let us know. You can contact us on Twitter and Facebook. Our handle there is TechStuffHSW. Or you can send us an email, and that address is TechStuff at HowStuffWorks.com. And Chris and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?